Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have a special guest. They're all special, but this one is very special today in particular. So um, we've asked Dr. Joshua Grubbs, PhD, to come on and talk about his research. Joshua, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? I am an uh, assistant professor of psychology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. Great. Part of the reason we, we wanted to have you on is we love talking about kind of the weird things that come up in sexuality and moralism. And so you've done quite a bit of research uh, in particular about online pornography and religiousness and moral incongruence. And so I was wondering if you wanted to talk to kind of speak to what the findings that you've had seem to show. Yeah, so I've been researching pornography use and religiousness and morality for actually a decade as of this year. Uh, I started as an undergraduate student looking at it, developed it over my graduate years and have carried it into my um, job as a faculty member. And, And what we generally find is, as you may or may not be aware, a lot of people talk about pornography addiction, the notion that you can be addicted to pornography, that pornography is an addictive sort of activity in the same way that drugs might be addictive. What my research generally shows is that while certainly some people do have problems regulating their pornography use, some people do use it excessively and some people do have problems associated with that use, among the general population, what we actually find is it's not dysregulation that predicts whether or not they think they're addicted or whether they believe pornography can be addictive. It's religiousness and more specifically the moral belief that pornography is wrong. Uh, And that's where that idea of moral incongruence comes in. So if you believe something's wrong and you're still doing it, then there's an incongruence between your beliefs and your behaviors. Uh, Dissonance is another word that you might have heard of in psychology. And we showed that that's actually pretty much consistently the best predictor of whether or not someone thinks that they have a problem with pornography use. Is there a normal amount of internet pornography use or an abnormal amount? As of now, we don't have that so clearly defined. But the reality is, is a lot of addictions, it's not clear what's the normal versus what's not normal. You know, for example, gambling, which we consider an addictive disorder, someone might gamble quite frequently, but it's not causing problems in their life. And if it's not causing problems, we probably wouldn't call it an addiction. The same is probably similar for pornography use. Now, we don't have a diagnosis of an addiction for pornography use or for sexuality at all. But the key criteria seems to be whether or not it's creating problems in someone's life. So I I don't know if you can speak to this, if this is your area of expertise, but are behavioral addictions akin to physiological addictions or or physiological dependencies on external substances? So, yes, actually, this is is one of my areas of expertise uh, in general. I don't just study pornography use. I study gambling as well, as well as compulsive sexuality. And there are some ways that I would say that they're similar. Specifically, the patterns of dysregulation, the difficulty stopping the behavior, even when there's severe consequences, often there's escalation and things like that, particularly with gambling. The physiological dependence is is not nearly as analogous. Now, there are some neurological studies that suggest some similarities, but those are very tentative and speculative at best. 
So, you know, the dysregulation, being out of control and kind of ruining your life when you can't stop a behavior is there's clear parallels between behaviors and substances. The actual physical dependence, like you might see in opioids or even alcohol or benzodiazepine addiction, that's not nearly as clear. What leads to behavioral addictions? (laughs) That is a, a big hard to answer question that varies person to person. What we know generally predicting dysregulation, some people just get hooked and we don't know what separates them from anyone else. They just, they find it really enjoyable and they can't stop. That's a small group. The larger groups are people that are likely using a behavior to cope with something else. So we see this a lot with say PTSD or anxiety disorders where, you know, instead of using coping mechanisms that we might consider more healthy, you do things that help distract you. And what better way to distract you than sitting at a casino at a slot machine or looking at porn or or something like that. It's something very engaging. Yes. It's something engaging that allows you to distract yourself from the internal turmoil that's hard to cope with. And that's probably the largest category. There's also a separate subset that we see that just have some real troubles with impulsivity and behavioral dysregulation in general. That one is a much smaller subset. It's associated with more severe patterns. It's also associated with some other diagnoses as well. That's the least likely to see, although it does come up occasionally. So could you clarify for our listeners who... uh may not have the kind of jargon vocabulary that like we're, we're like three people who study psychology <laughs> talking but uh if you could explain for our listeners uh what does the term dysregulation mean so dysregulation is just it very much is the psychology jargony way of saying out of control i mean that's that's all it comes down to is being out of control so you're saying that there are kind of these two distinct patterns of behavioral addiction that we see There's actually three. So one is the one that that becomes out of control because the behavior itself is enjoyable. That's a small group. Um, It's just basically finding out that you really like something and having trouble quitting it. That's a small group. Honestly, most people do a pretty decent job figuring out like, okay, maybe I've done this too much. I mean, a lot of people might relate to like, hey, I found a new video game that I really liked and I kind of played it way too much for a little while. And then I decided, you know, I need to get my life back together. That's not the most severe cases. So uncommon and less severe are people who enjoy it and then just yes. a lot because they like it so much. And then there's, yes. you were saying, the, the avoidance people? The, the avoidance or coping people that are using it to deal with some sort of turmoil, you know, anxiety disorder, PTSD, something like that. And those are more common? More common um, as far as... Be- leading to an actual behavioral addiction, yes. Right, okay, so having trouble stopping or feeling that there are consequences or it's out of control. What it comes down to is for a lot of those people, the consequences of the behavioral addiction seem less daunting than not having the behavior to distract you from your trauma or your anxiety or your depression or whatever it is that it's providing you a a relief from. It's probably not actually that effective. It probably actually makes things worse, but in the moment, it feels like it's helping you not have to feel those things that you don't want to feel. That's probably more common. We see that a ton in gambling, um, and research is now showing that we're seeing that with compulsive sexuality as well. And then the, the third type, which you said was also less common, 
or people who have this kind of trait impulsivity? Yes. So really just at a, at a trait level, struggling with regulating behaviors. We also see higher antisocial tendencies in that group, which just kind of refers to difficulties with authority, difficulties following the rules, difficulties with empathy, things like that. That group on the whole is the most severe, but they are also the smallest group as well. What do you mean by most severe? Their symptoms tend to be the worst. They tend to be the have the most consequences associated with the addiction. They tend to be the least responsive to treatment, which is probably speaks to the impulsivity in general. But yeah, we see that there's quite a bit of uh, dysregulation or being out of control with them and a lot lower uh, impulse to change. And so what kind of treatments do we see for people who have particularly uh, internet pornography addictions or other behavioral addictions? In general, we see that behavioral addictions are most commonly treated by some version of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's whether it's gambling or compulsive sexuality or anything like that. We also see increasingly what we call acceptance commitment therapy interventions, which is similar to CBT, but focuses a lot more on things like mindfulness and accepting kind of where you are in your life, which can help you cope with things that are getting in the way of kind of living the life that you want to live. So those are the most common that we see, but really the reality is, is there aren't really many empirically validated treatments for either type of behavioral addiction at this point in time, because there's been limited funding for those type of trials or research studies that would study what kind of treatments work. And then we also just got a diagnosis of compulsive sexual behavior disorder in 2018. So before that diagnosis existed, it was next to impossible to do a study of how to treat it. With all of that being said, the people who consider themselves addicted to pornography it's less likely that they're experiencing the, the kind of symptoms that we described or the, the kind of subtypes of people who end up with this disorder. You're saying that more predictive of how a person identifies as an addict to this kind of stuff is whether or not they have religious beliefs that pornography at all is wrong. Yes, that, that seems to be the determining criteria in general, or at least the most predictive. So we know that the people that are the most likely to identify that way are men. Like gender is a huge factor in predicting this. We also know that religiousness is hugely predictive as well, particularly if they are both religious and morally disapproving of such use while still using it. So they may only be using a little bit. They only may be watching every now and then but that creates a feeling of incongruence, a feeling of a disconnect between their values and their actual behaviors. And that leads to this feeling, we, we think, of addiction or being out of control. That kind of brings up the question of if somebody is only using internet pornography very rarely, uh, but has this moral incongruence and therefore feels like they're violating their values and that that's a a consequence for them, how does that fit into the diagnostic criteria and the, the odds that they'll receive a diagnosis? So if you, you look at the new diagnosis for compulsive sexual behavior disorder, CSBD, 
there's a specific line in there that says the feelings of distress and impairment must not only be the result of moral distress or religious distress. So what that means is if the person is only using a little bit and the use itself is not creating problems and instead we see the distress overuse creating problems, if that's what's occurring, then it is very unlikely that they will get a diagnosis of CSBD. What can be done at that point? Is there like some psychoeducation on the disorder? So if somebody's coming to you, to you as a clinician in moral distress rather than in an addiction that's diagnosable, what do you do with them? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So um, two things, I mean, Psychoeducation is always, you know, good to provide if the person's open to hearing it. But the reality is, if as a clinician, I, I am a clinical psychologist, I, I do therapy. If someone comes to me with any behavior that they think is inconsistent with their values, and it's not something that would be absurd to eliminate. So obviously, if you tell me that breathing is against your values, I'm not going to help you stop breathing. But if it looks, you know, from my estimations as a clinician and their estimation as the client that eliminating this behavior is important for them to live consistent with their values, then we're going to talk about ways to do that. That's work on behavioral regulation strategies. That's work on setting yourself up to win. And that's work on letting go of shame-filled labels like being an addict or being out of control and instead focus on living consistent with the values you do have. With this kind of finding, is it possible to get, or have there been studies of kind of population level statistics epidemiologically on people who have this kind of compulsive internet pornography use disorder? I'm so sorry, I'm getting it wrong, but this compulsive sexuality, sorry. <laughs> there have not been any true epidemiological studies. There have been nationally representative studies, and there, there's some differences between what each one is. There have been nationally representative studies. I've done a few. Um, there have actually been a few done in Australia. There have been a few done by a research group, I think affiliated with the Kinsey Group. What we generally find is somewhere between 5 to 10% of adults in the U.S. report feeling out of control at least a little bit in their sexual behaviors. That is a somewhat subjective number because we're just asking you do you feel out of control true epidemiological studies would do a comprehensive clinical and diagnostic interview but when you ask people if they feel out of control in their use that's the percentage we get somewhere between five and ten typically percent which is a lot so we do need the epidemiological work with the new diagnosis in the icd-11 i do believe that we're going to have it i think that we're going to have epidemiological research in the next five to ten years but we're not there yet so this criteria is recognized by the ICD. Is it part of uh, any DSM working groups right now or no? It almost made it into the DSM-5. Uh, when the DSM-5 gets revised, it might make it in because of the ICD. The reality is in the medical community, in the psychiatric community, the ICD kind of outranks the DSM, if you will. I don't mean that literally, but the ICD is what the EU uses. It's what Australia uses. It's an international system. It's also how most billing in the U.S. is done. So people enter their DSM diagnosis, and then it's converted by the system to an ICD diagnosis. And then the ICD diagnosis is how insurance gets billed. So 
the fact that it's in the ICD-11 is enough, and the DSM is not going to resist that. These are the type of things that will cause the DSM to lose people that want to use it if they don't kind of keep up with international standards. So I'm also curious, you, you mentioned kind of in your general bio on your website that you also study um, people's experiences of exiting religion. Could you speak a bit to that? We have, uh, I think, a large kind of atheist community listener base. It's definitely not my main area, but I started doing it in grad school because of a couple of my lab mates in the research group I was in in graduate school did this kind of research as well, and we've continued it, and a few of my current graduate students do it as well. It's a big, complicated issue for years and years and years and years. People kind of thought about atheism just as the absence of religious belief, and there was a lot of stereotypes and misunderstandings out there, some pretty toxic views of non-belief. I've just been a part of a few different groups that have tried to look at it in more holistic terms and understanding it as not just being about the absence of something, but as kind of a separate way of, of doing life. I currently have a couple of students working on exiting from insular religious communities. So that means things like maybe fundamentalist Latter-day Saint communities, things like Orthodox Judaism, the kind of stuff that involves a kind of community that you're exiting, not just a faith. And what does that look like for you? That research is early on, but what we find is that it, it's hard to leave an entire community that is your entire world when you're leaving a faith, and it makes it the transition hard, but those people that leave often have compelling reasons to do so. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that's very difficult, and I, I work with a lot of Orthodox or ex-Orthodox students, actually, in the school that I, I teach at, and I think it's really a fascinating community. It seems very, uh, you know, having watched some documentaries about also the, the Orthodox communities in Brooklyn, it does seem like a very extremely different way of life. Yes, certainly, yes. One of my students actually did leave from one of those Orthodox communities in Brooklyn and was actively involved in one of the ex-Orthodox groups known as Footsteps. That's where a lot of his research is focuses on that this very topic and what does that look like and whether, you know, we've really been trying to look at leaving those kind of religious groups in the same way that we would look at leaving a country via immigration, you know, seeing if immigration models or how we understand immigration also applies to immigrating out of a insular faith community. Again, it, it's still early work. And we're trying to see if, it, if it's going to work out or not. But it, it's a topic that's been severely under-researched over the past several decades. And we're, you know, we're trying to correct that a little bit. So the way that I have kind of been introduced to you as a, as a researcher is through kind of academic Twitter, uh, like academic psychology Twitter. And so you're a really active and well-followed presence on Twitter. Do you see that as kind of an extension of your, your role as an educator? Uh, or how do you kind of conceptualize the way that you discuss your research and kind of the state of the field on psychology, uh, of psychology on Twitter? So a few things. One, social media for psychologists is the same as it is for anyone else, is that it keeps us connected with the people that we want to stay connected with. So 
the easiest way for me to, you know, shout out to a bunch of my psychology researcher friends across the globe and ask a question that I'd like their input on is Twitter. I, I, I say something like, hey, I have a student working on this. What are people's thoughts? And I get several replies over the next few hours that answer the question. Or I'm designing a new course, and I'm curious what, what other professors have done. I, I tweeted about that a few weeks ago, and I had like 10 syllabi emailed to me by the next day. So part of it is just connection. It's just connection with each other. But as far as the public-facing side of it, I do view it as how I try to represent my research as some people that follow my research know I have a pretty dedicated crowd of detractors, if you will, and they have written lovely blogs, thousands and thousands of words about how I am biased in my research and that I am trying to say that everybody should you know, view pornography and be okay with it, which is not what I say. But because of that, I realized that I needed to be doing a little bit to just get on the record and saying, hey, here's what my research shows. Here's what it doesn't show and try to kind of control some of that narrative myself. And I use Twitter for that, too, and I find it helpful. There's not much point in arguing with people that want to write mean blogs about you. That's that's the Internet. But being able to put my own message out there is useful. Do you feel that the kind of personal trolls that, that blog about you, do you feel they interfere with your professional life? There's nothing that has created problems in my work or my professional life. And, and I do believe that the people that, you know, have problems with my work are coming from a place of being very invested in, you know, the work that they do. I, I don't think it's personal. Who knows at this point? But it's never interfered with my job. The scientific community respects the work that I do. My department, my school likes the work that I do. Uh, so people being detractors is not a huge deterrent for me one way or the other. Are these detractors other academics or is it more an ideological kind of thing? Yeah, no, definitely not academics. I love people who argue academic things without an academic background in social media very confidently. I just really enjoy reading their stuff. <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's it can be a little frustrating, but it's fascinating. And I think, I mean, I, I say this quite often part of being a good scientist is hearing criticism from all sources and deciding what to do with that criticism as you move forward. I mean, part of being a scientist is having people that want to prove you wrong, and then you need to be open to being proved wrong. Speaking to that a bit, I also am aware that you're very involved in kind of the, the open science movement in that I have institutional access, but part of the way that I can share things that I think are really fascinating are when people post preprints, and I, I know you've posted preprints and you pre-register projects, and so I was wondering, can you kind of speak to what, what, what is the open science movement and just really, really surface level, not having to dive too deep, and, and why you personally participate? The reality is, is that psychology has been dealing with for a few years now something known as the replication crisis or a credibility crisis, whatever you want to call it. A lot of our findings don't seem to be robust. They seem to be the result of some kind of sketchy statistics and research methods. This has resulted in a, a kind of a counter push to say, well, instead of being you know, questionable or putting out findings that aren't good, let's do what we can to be as rigorous and as transparent as possible. Because the the solution to bad science is not 
perfect science. It's open science. It's having your science completely transparent so people can see from the question you asked to the research study you designed to the statistics you used, to the final papers you wrote. They can see your whole process, and they can find out for themselves whether or not there's problems with it. So, I mean, to me, yeah, open science involves things like, you know, putting on the record what we're expecting to find before we go looking for it. It involves sharing our findings publicly and not behind some sort of expensive journal paywall because it sometimes have to pay to get access to scientific studies. Well, as the authors, we can make them publicly available, so we do that. And I'm involved with that because I want to be a good scientist, and I work in a controversial area, and I want people to be able to critique me you know, honestly and openly based on the work that I do. So why not put it out publicly? So as a graduate student, I'm really interested in the same thing, and I've, I've made a pre-registration for my master's thesis that I am now collecting data on registered my hypotheses and my planned analyses and all that. I don't know that my hypotheses and planned analyses are any good because, you know, this is kind of my first dive into the deep end. Is there a, a mechanism in the open science movement to kind of help students whose institutions may not be as focused on rigor? Uh, or whose advisors may not be as focused or uh, as aware? So my advisor and I are, are discovering this together, and I'm so grateful to have an advisor who's, who's really interested in this with me. You know, some faculty members that I talk to have no idea what I'm saying when I mention pre-registration. And so there's an imbalance, I think, of, of uh, training on this. And, and so is there kind of a mechanism for, for students in training who want to be involved to kind of learn how? Yeah, there are tons of resources. If you just Google the Center for Open Science, which is housed, I think, at UVA, it's run by Brian Nozak, there are a plethora of resources. People have, you know, there are thousands of students that are in the same situation that you're describing, thousands of students that are in the situation of having advisors that just don't care about open science. And if you go through the Center for Open Science, there's lots of resources for doing things. And then as a student or someone who's interested in it, getting involved in those Twitter communities that talk about it will easily connect you. you know, if you have questions about open science as a student, there's quite a few people on Twitter you could ask directly that if they can't answer it, they're going to retweet you and ask you, ask their groups of people to answer it for you. And there, there's a lot of resources that are there. But the place to start is definitely the Center for Open Science. They have a lot of resources, and they're even more invested than ever in helping students. Because we know, like, changing norms and changing institutions is hard. But if you, you reach students, you're not going to change things immediately. But as more students get involved, the next generation of academics is going to be doing this. And that will change the norms. I was thinking about this before, and you know, given that uh, your research intersects uh, with religion and and with pornography use, we previously had a guest on this show from the Our Whole Lives curriculum, which is used by the Unitarian Universalist Association and the United Church of Christ. It's a comprehensive sex ed program for young people, mm-hmm. and I was just wondering, just for people who do that program, or for anyone who considers themselves an evidence based or comprehensive sexuality educator, how would you hope that uh, your research would inform their teaching? Like, what could sex educators or young people take away from it with regards to what they should know about pornography? So I don't research, you know, adolescent effects, and I think that that's something that there needs to be even more research on. What I will say is this. 
that anyone that's doing that type of education needs to talk about the intersection of personal beliefs and values and personal behaviors and natural behaviors and how do we reconcile sometimes the tensions between those you know life is one extended tension between what we want to be doing which is you know hedonism and living as a productive member of society for some reason we really struggle to talk openly and in a non-shame based way when it comes to that kind of tension around sexuality anything that people can do to reduce stigma and shame and just talk openly and honestly about things and about that tension between what your values might be and what your natural inclinations towards behaviors are is going to be useful and that's where i hope that my research comes in thank you so much where can people find you on the internet i am on twitter at joshua grubbs phd and my website is joshuagrubbsphd.com and you can find me at a carrot u-h-k-a-r-e-n and i'm on twitter at miss cherry pie p-i like the number pie You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.